Well, there's a famous story in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel. As it's told, a great crowd gathered to watch an intense debate between the disciples and the Jewish scribes. I imagine the scene was unfolding much like the Supreme Court hearings this last week. Jesus steps into the scene and asks what they're arguing about, and a man from the crowd comes up to Jesus and explains the situation. This is what he says. In Mark 9, 17, he says, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So picture this. We have a desperate father coming to Jesus. He's heard rumors about him. Uh, He's come to him for help. He really isn't sure if he believes everything he hears, but he decides it's worth giving it a shot. But he can't find Jesus, so his disciples uh, are there, and he asks them for help, and they can't. And so an argument breaks out between them and the scribes, and now Jesus comes. He's here, and they decide to bring this man's son to Jesus. Now the man's son, as soon as he arrives, falls on the ground and starts foaming at the mouth. And I'm sure the heart of the father breaks. Jesus asks him how long this has been happening, and the man replies, since childhood. Since childhood. His whole life. This has been happening. And no one has a clue how to help him. I mean, I imagine the family has, has at this point given up hope. And we learn that there's an evil spirit that has been causing this to happen. The father recounts how it's tried to kill his son by either burning him alive or throwing him in the water trying to drown him. Imagine the father's heart. And so he follows this, with, with, follows this with a desperate plea through tears. He comes to Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us. Help us. Help us. Weeping, he looks in Jesus' eyes and says, help, help my son. And I imagine that Jesus pauses and looks at him with compassion. But then Jesus does his Jesus thing. He doesn't just heal the boy, he challenges the father. He doesn't say, you poor man, of course, of course, I'll help you. No. He looks straight at the father, he looks him in the eye, and this is what he says. If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. If you can. If. If. I mean, do you even know who you're making this request of, sir? Of course Jesus can heal this boy, but he's asking the father to believe. And the father responds, as so many of us would have in this situation. His son has been hurting and debilitated for years. And at this point, he's willing to try anything. And so with an exasperated cry, he responds honestly. He responds as so many of us would respond. I believe Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And I wonder if that's been you at some point in your life. Have you ever had a situation where you wanted to believe, but you couldn't? At least not in your own strength. That you desperately wanted wanted to believe, but you were filled with unbelief. You wanted to believe God, or you wanted to believe that God could do something, but all you could say was, help my unbelief. This morning, we begin a sermon series entitled, Belief 
in an age of skepticism. And we're preaching this series this fall because we think there are many people in this place. They're filled with doubts. They may want to believe, but they need help with their unbelief. Perhaps that's even you this morning as you've walked in. We make no assumptions. You may be here and have been a Christian for years, yet you still have doubts. You may be here this morning and you've never set foot in a church before. In fact, you didn't even know you needed to believe. Well, this series is about strengthening our faith by wrestling with some of life's most challenging questions. And so with that in mind, it's fitting that we begin this morning by taking up the subject of doubt. Is it okay to doubt? Well, with that in mind, would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're humbled. We're humbled by your word. We're humbled by... uh, by Jesus and what he has done, Lord. And yet I admit there's many folks here that may have questions about this. Father, their hearts are not quite there. There's barriers to belief, Lord. That may be some of us in this room or we may know people like that, Lord. And so I pray this morning that you would just open our eyes, give us, give us wisdom, give us, give us, enlighten our hearts, Lord, that we may know more of what you're trying to teach us and that we may know more of you. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you do love Jesus, you probably recognize there is a crisis facing the kingdom of God in America. An increasing number of people have no clue who God is or what Christianity is all about. Who is Jesus? What did he do? When did he live? Who is this Jesus guy you speak of? which has caused researcher David Kinnaman, among others, to conclude that we are currently living in a post-Christian America. Now, as a result, more and more people in our society are starting to believe that religion is not just something to doubt or something that's unnecessary. There is a growing sense that many people, among many people, that religion has actually become part of the problem. In a post-9-11 world, many people started to think this and caution about radical Islam. But since then, it's been extended beyond Islam to all religion, which includes us. It includes Christianity. In other words, many people think Christianity is not the solution, it's actually the problem. Atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris have given us the idea that religion poisons everything. And it's this mindset that undergirds our post-Christian culture. And if, honestly, if you don't understand that, uh, when you share your faith, you're going to miss where many people are coming from. In his book, Churchless, Kinnaman details some of their findings about religious life in America. The big bombshell they discover? The younger the generation, the more post-Christian it is, with millennials and younger people leading the way at 48% post-Christian. In fact, as a pastor, I've talked with parents who said, Pastor Bob, could you please talk to my son, talk to my daughter? I feel like they're wandering from the faith and I'm devastated. Maybe that's even you here today. Now, Kinnaman's research came to two important conclusions. First, the church and the gospel is becoming increasingly unfamiliar to millions of Americans. But secondly, the churchless are largely comprised of de-churched adults meaning people who grew up in the church and then left. In other words, we as a church are contributing to the number of people who are unchurched in our country. Now, why is that? 
Well, six things are mentioned in the book, but I want to draw your attention to the last point that they bring out emphatically, that churches are unfriendly to those who doubt. Let me say that again. Churches are unfriendly to those who doubt. Many young adults, and I think older adults too, no longer attend church because they did not feel they were safe places to wrestle with their doubts about their beliefs, about the beliefs, teachings, or practices of Christianity. In other words, in many ways, it's the church's fault. It's people who do what I do. It's pastor's fault. It's our fault. And I just want us to think about that this morning because something has to change, which strikes at the heart of our topic today. In fact, there was a recent article in the Washington Post that was entitled, I'm an atheist, so why can't I shake God? I'm an atheist, so why can't I shake God? And tell us the story of a woman named Elizabeth King, who in her mid-teens abandoned her childhood Christian faith for atheism. And here's what she writes. She says, the story of my departure from church resembles those of many others who have abandoned the flock. When I was about 16, I started asking questions during services that my youth pastors couldn't or didn't want to answer. Why is it a sin to be gay? Why is it okay to spank children? Where does the Bible say we can't have premarital sex? Still, in spite of her atheism, King states, somehow God has found a way to stick around in my mind. She said, God has a lingering presence in my life, which I would banish if possible. In the end, she admits, I have no choice but to accept that I'm an atheist with a sense for God. An atheist with a sense for God. Now, that's an interesting statement. Very interesting. But maybe that's like you. Maybe you don't have faith, but yet you find yourself sometimes praying to a God you're not quite sure you believe in. And I wonder why that is. Maybe somewhere deep down, you still kind of hope it's true. But I also want to note that Miss King grew up in the church. And if I could speak to the church just for a second, I... Friends, I don't think we want to grow and be a place that produces atheists with a sense for God. I don't think that's our goal. I think we want to be a place that produces people who love Jesus with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Now, to do that, we need to be a place for people to express doubts and struggles. Now, my suspicion is that there's several types of people who've walked in this room here today. First, you may have been going to church your whole life. And yet you still have questions. Questions that were never answered because you were never allowed to ask them. The second type of person who's walked in here today is someone who has never, ever, or even rarely been to church. You're searching for something. You don't know what, but you're here today because you want to get some answers to life's biggest questions. And to you, I say welcome. This series is for you. We want you to bring your doubts and hopefully consider some new possibilities. Now, the third type of person who's here today is a Christian who's just a little bit too sure of themselves. You haven't wrestled with doubts, and you really don't understand why people do doubt. And so if you're honest, you can be less than gracious when others express doubts. Now, if you're in that third camp, I want to challenge you with some advice from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. He writes this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they 
as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. And he continues. He says, believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts. Not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. What does that mean? Well, antibodies are like glycoproteins floating around in your body. They're little glycoproteins floating around in your body that help you fight off a terrible disease-causing bacteria or virus. And so what Keller is saying here is that doubts are necessary to strengthen our immune system against unbelief. And they help us to be more empathetic to those who don't believe just yet. Because if you simply inherited your faith, but never wrestled with why it's true, you are vulnerable to being convinced otherwise. And so I may ask the question this morning, how are you doing? Did you inherit your faith? Have you wrestled with the the challenging questions and doubts and become stronger in your faith? If you're here today and you're just a bit too sure of yourself, I would invite you during our series to begin to wrestle with some hard questions. I would invite you to become more like the father in Mark 9 who came to Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. Help my unbelief. And even if you don't have hard questions, find someone who does and wrestle with them. Wrestling with doubts doesn't mean you stop believing. It is actually a way of strengthening your faith and respecting and understanding those who doubt. Friends, for the next three months, we need to become a place where doubt is welcome. The banner over our church should read, Doubters welcome, because your faith will be strengthened when you wrestle with your doubts, and more people will come to faith because they know they can ask questions and express those doubts. There are three categories of doubt I want to speak to you about today. Doubts of the mind, doubts of the heart, and doubts of the will. Doubts of the mind, doubts of the heart, and doubts of the will. And my hope is that these categories will help you identify the type of doubter you have been or maybe are, and which will help you understand how to approach your questions. In his excellent work, The Thomas Factor, author Gary Habermas greatly helps me to identify these categories. In fact, I'll bet you can even see yourself in one of these areas. Well, the first category, as I mentioned, is a doubt of the mind, or what Gary Habermas calls factual doubts. Now, factual doubts are chiefly concerned with the foundations of religious belief and whether they're well-grounded. And so a person might ask, are there reasons for my faith? Doubts of the mind cause us to examine evidence for Christianity, which can come from many areas. Areas that you would examine would likely be biblical. Is it logical? Is it, is it historical? Is it scientifically accurate? Is it moral? But the chief concern with the doubt of the mind is, are there answers to the legitimate questions I have about my faith. In other words, people who experience this type of doubt are asking, is Christianity true? As such, when confronting doubts of the mind, we require evidence. And this is often answered in the arena of the Christian faith called apologetics. Now, we see examples of this even in Scripture. I mean, after Jesus rose from the dead, perhaps the most famous example of this, uh, he appeared to the other disciples, and Thomas, one of his followers, said he needed more. John chapter 20, verse 24 says this. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him what we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Unless I see, I will never believe. I need the facts, Thomas says. And of course, eight days later, Jesus walks through a wall and appears to Thomas. He says, do you need evidence, Thomas? Touch my hands. Touch my feet. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas falls to the ground and cries, my Lord and my God. Thomas was a factual doubter. And the truth is, many of us are like Thomas. We won't believe until we see. And so we learn to ask critical questions like, can I trust the Bible? Did God create the world and how did he do that? Did Jesus truly rise from the dead? Do miracles happen? Is the supernatural real? Now, much of our series will be examining the evidence of the Christian faith as it relates to even these questions. So I'm not going to spend time on that topic now. I would simply encourage you to stick around for the rest of the series because we're going to likely answer your question in greater detail in the coming weeks. But before I leave this topic, I do want to note the questions that are going to face us more and more as the years go by. In his book, Meet Generation Z, Pastor James White discusses the questions that are coming from the next generation. In fact, his subtitle is Understanding and Reaching the New Post-Christian World. For those who don't know, Generation Z is the generation that's coming behind the millennials. They're born roughly around 1996 and after. And White notes that there's, uh, there's two things they're really uh, struggling with, two major themes. In fact, he's got a whole chapter called Apologetics for a New Generation. And the two themes are this, the occult and science. The first relates to a growing fascination with ghosts, even in popular entertainment. And if you've heard of or you're familiar with the Netflix show Stranger Things, you know that's kind of evidence to the fact that people are fascinated with this. Even uh, the head of CBS, Leslie Moonves, made an interesting statement when promoting their new show, The Ghost Whisperer, a few years ago. He said this, he said, I think talking to ghosts skews younger than talking to God. Well, how do we address those questions? We'll wait for a week on miracles and the supernatural, and we'll get into that. Now, the second area is science. The younger people more and more are wrestling with how to reconcile the biblical evidence and scientific uh, ideas that are out there. Questions about the age of the earth and evolution are first and foremost on their mind. In fact, James White calls these the what is up with questions. For example, he was getting interviewed on NPR and the host asked White an honest question. He said, Hey, what the heck is up with this idea that the earth is only six or 7,000 years old? Now, you may have a very strong feeling about that. I'm simply pointing out that people in a post-Christian world will have more of these questions. So come back next week for our origin sermon, and Pastor Dave is going to answer all of them. No pressure. Now, I'm sure at this point people are saying, Objection! Objection, Pastor Bob! Christians shouldn't doubt. Christians shouldn't doubt. I mean, doesn't James say that we should believe and not doubt? Well, indeed. James does exhort us to have faith, but let me offer a little bit of context. James is not demanding that a believer never question what God gives them. He is saying that we should never question the character of God. 
For example, perhaps you're sitting here today and you're walking through an incredibly difficult situation and you're asking the question, why did God allow me to go through this specific trial? Why, God? Why? No, it's not wrong to ask that question, but when we start to doubt the goodness, the love, and the sovereignty of God, that is the doubting that James is objecting to. And if we doubt God's character, we show ourselves unwilling to trust God with our lives Because the reality is this, God can handle any question that's thrown his way. What he ultimately wants is for us to trust him with our lives. And I would argue that the ability to ask genuine questions and express doubts helps to build faith. Now, we also have numerous examples of biblical characters who expressed doubt. Just consider the example of John the Baptist in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, where we find that even Baptists doubt. While he was in prison, he got word of what Jesus was doing, that he was healing people, that he was teaching about the kingdom of God, but John still had doubts. And so he sent word to the disciples, through his disciples, and he said this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, Jesus? Are you who you said you are? Now, if this was an ordinary person who shouted this to Jesus in a crowd, uh, we wouldn't think anything of it. But this, uh, this is John the Baptist. This is the forerunner of Jesus predicted in the Older Testament. And he was questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one. What are we to make of that? Was John in danger of throwing his faith overboard? Because if John can ask questions like this, surely we can, right? Well, note Jesus' response. Jesus goes on to say, go and tell John what you see in here. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, notice what Jesus didn't do here. Jesus didn't say, John, how could you ask a question like that? Jesus didn't say, I won't dignify that question with a response. No. Jesus simply said, here's the evidence, believe. Translation, Jesus can handle our doubts. Jesus can handle our doubts. And listen, John wasn't the only example of people who doubted. Read the entire book of Job. If there was a man who was going to doubt and had a reason to doubt, it was probably him. He lost Everything, kids killed, his wealth gone, overnight. And his wife and a bunch of his friends started telling him to curse God. <laughs> Jesus can handle our doubts. He can take out, take our what is up with questions. But the question we have to ask is, how will we handle the what is up with questions? Because that's what we have to grapple with. Now, maybe you're not struggling with doubts of the mind. Maybe you're struggling with the second category, doubts of the heart. Doubts of the heart, which Gary Habermas calls emotional doubts. Now, in reality, I think these are the most common doubts, the ones we struggle with the most. Doubts of the heart or emotional doubts can be identified by the way an individual feels about a subject rather than judging the subject on its own merits. Habermas puts it this way. He says that the single most revealing ingredient in identifying emotional struggles is what if. That's the what if element. Sometimes the question is asked directly, or on other occasions, it's implied. 
Rather than accepting the question data in a straightforward manner, this response is made in spite of the available facts, regardless of how convincing. That you can have a great argument, and yet people will still doubt. Why? Because there's an underlying emotional part that goes with it. And this form of doubt is often influenced by the reality of evil and suffering in the world. People ask the age-old question, how can a good God allow suffering? How can a good God allow evil? What if something bad happens to me? What if God allows my husband or wife to die, my child to die, my child to suffer? I believe God is good, but what if, what if, what if he never provides me with a spouse? What will I do then? What if I lose my job? What if I have to move? What if they don't love me anymore? Have you ever been there? These questions all lead to doubts of the heart, and they make us anxious. Now, we don't think objectively about these questions. It's not the issue. The issue is how we're feeling about them. And in those moments, we resonate with the psalmist even more. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 44. After listing a litany of things God has allowed to happen to he and his people, David pours out his heart, and he seems to question God. He writes this. He says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression, God? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now it would seem that the Holy Spirit allowed for some honest feelings to be mentioned here. Indeed, doubt is multifaceted, but I think there is a time and place to express our doubts in a way that they can help us build faith, because God can handle them. And the truth is, we live in a culture where doubts of the heart are abundant. Listen to this. This past winter, 2017, a woman named Sarah Fader, who's a 37-year-old social media consultant in Brooklyn, who has generalized anxiety disorder, texted a friend in Oregon about an impending visit. And when a quick response failed to materialize, she posted on Twitter to her 16,000-plus followers, I don't hear from my friend for a day, and my thoughts, they don't want to be my friend anymore. Appending that with the hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like. Thousands of people were soon offering up their own examples under that hashtag. Some were even retweeted a thousand times. You might say that Ms. Fader struck a nerve. In an interview, she said, if you're a human being living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. Wow. But have you ever experienced the doubt of the heart? I suspect some have at some point. Many of us. Now, Habermas identifies some things that can aggravate these doubts. One area he says in relation with this is that psychological states can affect a doubt of the heart. That if you experience anxiety or depression, it can certainly aggravate a doubt in the heart. Maybe you're judging by feelings, reacting to situations based on your feelings. Now, when I speak to counselors, they always remind me that feelings are really neither good nor bad. They just are. It's really what we do with our feelings that matters. And so we need to step back and evaluate why we're feeling a certain way. Maybe it stems from childhood problems. 
I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that your family of origin has a lot to do with your emotions. And if you've experienced any form of abuse or you had a bad relationship with your parent, it can cause you not to trust God. Maybe there's more recent wounds that have come in your life. I often find people experiencing doubts of the heart when something bad happens. The death of a loved one, a recent breakup, loss of a job, betrayal by a good friend. And then you start to wonder, why? Those wounds sink deep and they make us wonder whether we can trust God. Maybe it's lack of sleep and an adequate diet. I mean, if you're not sleeping or eating well, it does affect your mood and cause you to question things you didn't before. In fact, my wife will confirm that if I skip a meal, I get pretty cranky. Maybe you have a faulty view of God. That some emotional doubts happen because we just don't have a correct view of who God is. That we think God has promised to do things that he didn't. For example, have you ever heard anybody say that God didn't answer their prayers, and so now the result is that person not believing in God? When in reality, God didn't answer their prayers exactly as they thought they should be answered. Now, Habermas mentions other examples, but I think those will get you started thinking about this. But I think the abundance of emotional doubts of, uh, emotional doubts of the heart in our world is the result of something deeper. And Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, people are not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. Now, people aren't on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And, and I remember thinking, reading that and thinking, hmm, that's actually true. That so often we come to people to share with them the gospel and we think they're looking for the truth, but in reality, many people around us are just looking to be happy. And when God doesn't make them happy, a doubt of the heart arises. So how do we combat emotional doubts? Well, I'm just simply going to suggest to you this morning, we need to stop the happiness quest and we need to get back on the truth quest. That if you're only focused on happiness, you can be enticed to do things that, aren't, that are harmful to you. I mean, listen, eating McDonald's every day may, for a time, make me happy. That's why they call it a happy meal. (laughs) But I'm going to pay for it later because I didn't read the nutrition facts. And whether you're a Christian or not here today, I I think you know this implicitly. If you go to a counselor and discuss your anxiety or depression, what do they tell you to do? That you have to take a step back and figure out what is true. And if you're having an emotional doubt about God, what should you do? Take a step back and examine who he truly is and what he has promised. In fact, I'd be shocked if the father in Mark chapter 9 was not experiencing a doubt of the heart. Right? His son has has been tortured his whole life. He comes to Jesus. He falls on his knees and says, help me. I'm at the end of my rope. Help me. Help my unbelief, Jesus. This man comes with doubts, and Jesus responds with deliverance and healing. You see, nobody thought this boy could be delivered from the evil spirit who was tormenting him. But when Jesus commands the spirits to obey, they listen. And so this is how the story continues later on. It says, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And so Jesus looks at this boy with this unclean spirit and says, come out. And with a crowd around him, the boy then falls on the ground in convulsions. We're told he's shaking terribly, frighteningly, but then the spirit comes out and it looks like the boy is dead. Now put yourself in the shoes of this father. Oh my goodness. What 
would it have been like to watch your child on the ground shaking and looking like he's dead? It would be like a dagger in your heart. And the text says the boy looked like a corpse and everyone thought he was dead. Perhaps at that moment the father doubted Jesus. But look at what happens next. It says, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. The boy everyone thought couldn't be healed, the boy they thought was dead, arose. Jesus did that. And I imagine that it did a lot to heal the heart of a doubting father. That his heart was healed because he saw that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if you're here today, I would just plead with you. If you're suffering with a doubt of the heart, I want to challenge you to wrestle with the claims of Christ. Wrestle with the accounts because he is the one who delivers the oppressed and offers people new life. Maybe life's been doing a number on you recently. It's been a rough, rough season. And you're willing to try something. If you wrestle with who Jesus is, you might fall on your knees and place your faith in the Savior King, Jesus Christ. In fact, commentator James Edwards puts it this way. He says, true faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able. That Jesus is able. That Jesus is in the business of doing the unexpected. He's in the business of healing the heart. He is in the business of doing the impossible if you come to him and believe. Friends, doubts of the heart can be difficult and heart-wrenching. But I encourage you to bring those doubts to him and let him show up in an unexpected and powerful way. And even if you're not doubting, don't be afraid to sit down with someone who is and listen. Because the last category is the one we don't want people to get to because if they get there, it's a dangerous place. The final category is doubts of the will or what Gary Habermas calls volitional doubt. That once a person reaches this level of doubt, they've already given up on God and they want nothing to do with him. A person in this category has lost the will to believe and may even be antagonistic toward God. This person is a cynic. I heard a definition of a cynic one time that said, a cynic is a person who's decided to protect their heart from hope or belief so that they will never be hurt again. And some of us know people who are willfully doubting. We've shared the truth of the gospel and they've rejected it. Some of us may even be in that place today. Now the reasons for this category vary, but often the path to a doubt of the will runs through the heart. And perhaps the heart hardens out of arrogance. Maybe you've walked through a difficult season and you didn't grow in your faith. Or maybe you're unrepentant of sin and you doubt because God is now distant. Whatever the case may be, we need to do whatever we can to help people not get to this place because it is so hard to turn back. Listen to this story. Oscar Isaac, the dashing X-Wing fighter pilot Poe Dameron from Star Wars The Force Awaken, was raised in an evangelical household. My dad was a man of extremes, he told GQ. So if God spoke to my father one day and said we were not supposed to have a TV in the house... Well, it was suddenly gone. Isaac, who played the father of Jesus, ironically, in the 2006 movie The Nativity Story, did not have the faith of his father. He describes his religious separation as a slow amputation. And so Dameron says religion is akin to the acting experience. 
He says, a director is always thinking, what is the right combination of words that I can say that will unlock the right response in you? If I say the right thing, it will unlock this thing in you, but if I say it wrong, the opposite will happen. He says, well, religion is very similar. Like somebody was meditating long ago that they put the right sentence together and thought, if you say these words in exactly the right way, you'll, you'll know how to live, but, but you have to say it exactly like this. Religion is like acting? Now, how did Isaac get to this place? What did BB-8 tell him? Now, I don't know all of Oscar Isaac's story, but I wonder if he reached this place because he had a doubt of the mind that wasn't answered. And then I wonder if he had a doubt of the heart that wasn't healed. And when people get to this place, they start to resonate with atheist Sam Harris when he writes this in his book, Letters to a Christian Nation. It's time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail. Sadly, many people in our world are getting to this place and thinking that Christians are irrelevant and extreme. And so, church, my exhortation for us today is this. Let's not allow people to leave our ranks because they weren't able to ask questions, because they weren't able to express their doubts. There's too much at stake that we need to be a place that says doubters welcome because our God can handle our doubts. And here's the truth. Whether people know it or not, they're atheists with a sense for God. And they're looking for answers that only the church can provide. And because of this, church still matters. That at the end of their book, Church List, David Kinnaman and George Barna highlight the value that church can bring to the world. And they say the church has the opportunity to show peace in a world that's at war. And our world needs that now more than ever. The church has the opportunity to model wisdom to a world that is laden with information. That the churches can mentor younger people and give them discernment in a world that is increasingly difficult to navigate. And all these things require relationships to be built. And that means allowing doubters to come to us and ask good questions. Church, our church matters. It matters. And you know what? It requires us to remember where we came from. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church many, many years ago when they were engaging in some non-God-honoring activity. And he wrote to them and reminded them from where they came. And he said this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And such were some of us. And some of us had lots of doubts until we wrestled with them and God opened our eyes. That some of us in here, our lives were a mess until the Holy Spirit intervened and turned our lives around. That some of us were dead in our sins and destined for hell until the power of the gospel removed the shackles from our heart and allowed us to believe that Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again from the dead. Worship team, would you join me on stage?
You see, Paul writes these words to the Corinthian church to tell people that they need to be empathetic to those who aren't as far along as them. He might as well have said, doubters, welcome, because it's here that you can believe. And no matter where you are on the journey, church still matters, and it needs to be the safest place to ask questions so that we can believe. So let's remove the barriers to meeting God. Let's be a place where people can say, I believe, help my unbelief. Where doubters are welcome because we have a God who can handle our doubts. And we really hope you join us for the rest of this series over the next few months because every single week we're going to try to do our best to address hard questions and handle the doubts that come with them. It's going to be an awesome time at NBC, so we really hope that you come and that you invite a friend. Amen. Let me pray for us.